Hello, everybody. This is Page A with the Daily Reflection Podcast. When somebody carries that message or speaks the language of the heart, it's as if God is speaking through them. God is speaking through them. It's okay to talk about my relationship with God. It is okay because at some point or another, most humanity or many people that are in that are human beings may have those moments in their life where they have the ability to tap into their higher self, and that would be God. You know. Welcome to the Daily Reflection Podcast. My name is Michael Lynn from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I'm Lee McGinnis from Leesburg, Virginia. As members of the recovery community, we created this podcast as a way to provide experience, strength, and hope through the lens of the Daily Reflection book. Each day, we interview members of the recovery community in the hope that their experience may provide inspiration. We value inclusion and diversity, and we really want to provide a platform for all the voices of recovery. We aren't affiliated with any 12-step or recovery program, but you may hear these mentioned throughout the course of an interview. Hey, before we get to the show, I'd like to ask a favor. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, it'd be great if you could leave us a comment or a rating. This is going to do a couple of things. It's going to help us expand our reach and improve the show. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Hey, Lee, who's in the studio today? So I'm excited today. We've got our friend Pej A. He's from Los Angeles, California. And by the way, it's May 15th. So he's going to be sharing with us his experience, strength, and hope around today's daily reflection, No God, No Peace. But what's really exciting is he's a fellow podcaster. He's got a podcast called Peggy's Recovery Corner. So we're going to hear a little bit about that today also. Fantastic. Well, Pej, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on the podcast. So good to be here. Thank you for having me. What an honor. We get started in the same way every day. We ask the guests to read the daily reflection for us. Pej, would you get us started? Okay, here we go. So no God, no peace, and 24 hours a day. It is plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness. But with the alcoholic, whose hope is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience, this business of resentment is infinitely grave. No God, no peace, no God, no peace. And that's K-N-O-W, God, K-N-O-W, peace, and then N-O, God, and N-O, peace. Love it. Thank you so much for reading that. I think you just got the shortest daily reflection in the whole book to read. <laughs> so congratulations. Um, before we get started, Pej, what is your sobriety date? My sobriety date is June 16th, 2007. So I'm coming up on 14 years next month. Excellent. So as you read this, what's the thing that comes to mind first? <laughs> well, you know, this particular, the saying itself, I know when I was about like three years sober, four years sober, Facebook had just come out and I was, I was always looking for some kind of creative cover photo. And I found this saying, no God, no peace, no God, no peace online. And um, it's like, it was like a little meme. And I just, I cut it out and put it up with like a sky in the background. And at that time I was, I had become a deep believer of God. Mind you, uh, early on in life, I was an atheist and an agnostic for for quite some time, for, for good reason. At least I thought it was for good reason. Obviously, this is something that comes out of, out of AA, you know, from page 66, but uh, at least the, the saying itself, or I'm sorry, the quote, uh, where it says deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness. And I, I have realized and realized that I was a, a person early on in life who was um, just, you know, overflowing with a ton of resentments and anger. And, and, um, and my spirit was sick because of, of the anger and, um, 
and everything that I was carrying around for so long that had become uh, my excuse to be able to use and drink and just numb out and not have to feel or or drink at people and use at people because I felt like I had been um, I was just mad at people and and so I love the start and and I love the the focus on spirituality. But I'm curious, what brought you in, and, and maybe talk a little bit about you know the source of some of those resentments. In a nutshell, being a Persian, I'm, I'm Persian. I was born in Germany and raised in Salt Lake City, Utah. So when I first had moved to to America at the age of five, I always felt different than everybody else. I was always comparing my insides to your outsides and losing every time. Being a brown boy growing up in in Salt Lake where there, everyone was Mormon and white and, you know, American. And I was this Persian kid with Muslim parents. The differences had already, had already began evolving at a very young age. So um, I was always trying to fit in with people and I would uh, do everything I could to do that by dressing like them, speaking like them, being like them. And at a very early age, I mean, uh, during that time, there was issues between Iran and America. So there were diplomatic issues and I was suffering the repercussions in my school by a, by just a few people. It wasn't like the entire school was out to get me, but for me, it felt like the entire school was out to get me. I thought people just don't like me here. And I was bullied at a very young age. So that's where the resentments kind of started to brew, you know, and then also within the house um, with my father, my father, he's a beautiful man. I love him very much. We have a wonderful relationship, but while growing up, he just had this particular way about him. He was a rageaholic. Um, you never knew what you got. It was a mixed bag. Sometimes if, if, if he was happy, you knew he was happy. And if he was in, in if he was angry, he wore, um, his, his anger on his face. And, and also sometimes, um, he would express his anger, through uh, verbally and, and physically. And sometimes this is where the anger was evolving also within the house and within the school. So that's where resentment started to come about. And then um, I know I just remember like I was all, I remember moving to California at the age of 15 years old and it was really cool to be able to uh, come to a, a different area and be around people of all different races, creeds and colors. And, and uh, high, it was the high school era and uh, there was a lot going on during that time. But um, I was, again, I was a chameleon that was blending in with whoever I could and using and drinking had already become a way of life at a very young age. So yeah, that's where the resentments first started. And, you know, there's a lot of people I didn't like as I was growing up. So talk to us a little bit about, um, you said your drinking already started into, into your high school years. And by the way, I can completely relate for different reasons mm-hmm. to that feeling of being completely not part of and excluded from and not welcome places. And, and I wonder if most of us alcoholics kind of feel that um, deep inside, you know, we all look different on the outside, but I think sometimes we feel the same on the inside, but uh, so I just wanted to tell you, I related to that, but talk to us about, about your using and alcohol consumption in, in high school. And how did that progress for you? Where it really started was in Utah. Actually, I was mowing lawns for my for my uncle, and we'd already learned about sniffing glue in class. Like some of us actually sniffed glue, and then we were told if you sniffed whiteout, um, that's dangerous. It's deadly. Don't do that. But you know, I'm I'm the type of guy that if if the if the lawn says don't walk on the grass, I'll stomp on the grass. So I'm, I'm going to try this stuff. Like whatever you say, don't do. Don't I would do. So when I was mowing these lawns, I don't know how I got the idea because there was no Google, but I, uh, after a long day's work, I would go in the shed and I would huff gas. And I remember like when I was huffing the gas, it would take me out of right here, right now. 
it would take me into another dimension. And I did that enough to where I remember I, I fell asleep once and the, the gasoline poured all over my genitalia and I burnt myself. So I decided I'm not going to do that anymore. And, and then it just kind of just transferred into other things. When we, I went to a Persian wedding, people were drinking, everyone was having a good time. They were mingling. I was this bored 12-year-old over in the corner watching them have this good time thinking, how am I going to get the next five hours of my life back? Like, when is this going to end? I noticed that people weren't finishing all of their drinks. I had already taken like little sips here and there off of my dad's beer and cognac years before, but nothing to the point of that night. That night I went around and I took a whiff and then I took a, a couple of sips. And the next thing you know, I finished all of their unfinished drinks. And and as the alcohol went down into my belly, that warm sensation came and, and I became bodily and mentally different than my fellows. And I was on that dance floor and I was singing, I was dancing, I was break dancing and pop locking and doing moves that I didn't even know I knew how to do. Right. And, um, I remember that night when my parents took me home, I was in the backseat of the car having my own little party. I was completely sauced, like just drunk out of my mind, slurring my words. And they took me home and they stuck me in my bed and I blacked out and I, and I wet the bed and I puked the bed that night. And I woke up the next morning and I thought, ah, I've arrived. I must do this over and over again. And so I just chased that feeling. And so we were smoking weed during that time. There was a few other outcasts in Utah, people that felt like they were different. And I think it is very common for alcoholics and addicts that they don't feel like they ever fit in. So we were a, a small tribe and we would get high behind the church smoking weed. I remember they called it Christmas tree bud because it looked like Christmas trees. And then so by the time I got to California, I was already a seasoned uh, user, if you will. Right. Like uh, I love drinking. I love the effect that was produced by alcohol. And then it just like became other things, too, like cocaine. You know, I was trying cocaine at the age of 16 and you know, during that time, we learned how to uh, rock it up with, with baking soda. And then we were freebasing. It was me and this kid named Omid. He was a Persian kid. And in our language, Omid means hope, but there was, there was no fucking hope for Omid, right? Like, I remember we were just two little crackheads, like smoking. I mean, it's not normal for two 16 year olds to be smoking crack that they, that they were, you know, in their, in their father's house. So, so that, that was then, you know, that's kind of like where my, my addiction was already in, in action and in motion. By the time I was 16, I was a seasoned drug addict, alcoholic. You know, I, I, I relate to that so deeply. I, I definitely felt like an outcast as well. And drinking and drugging became a solution. I mean, it solved my, my social anxiety. It, it, it helped me fit in. Talk to us about like when that solution for you stopped working. The reason that my addiction and alcoholism escalated was because I had a car accident when I was 17 years old. I was hungover from the night before, and um, and I was driving in the morning, and I hit this kid on his bike that was 14 years old that ended up dying about four days later. So it became my solution for a long time. It gave me every excuse to keep using and drinking. I went to juvenile hall for many months, and when I got out, I used more and more and more. In that time, my parents were going they were going to be divorcing. And I didn't like that because it was, although we had a dysfunctional family, I didn't want to have divorced parents. So again, I kept using and drinking. Mom moved to LA, dad moved to Iran and and I kept using. And, and for a long, this is the nineties. So like, it was a solution for, I didn't even think it was like, a, during the time, I didn't think I'm a full-blown addict. I was experimenting. And so it was a facade, you know, I, as much as I thought that life was good and things were going well, and with tr truth be told, we were enjoying ourselves because people weren't dying from drugs that you could die from almost immediately like they are these days. It wasn't like 
ecstasy is going to kill you tonight, right? So it was a solution for a long time until probably my late 20s. And then it, I started to create some wreckage in my life. And because of the wreckage, I realized that this lifestyle is not working for me anymore. However, I still had some mileage on me and I did not get sober right away. I got into more trouble and, and anything after between 30 and 35 was just to numb and not even feel it wasn't even a solution anymore. It was, it was just my driving force. It was what kept me going. So, so I thought it was, I was in survival mode and I was engulfed in during that time it was methamphetamines. I hear that. And what brought you into the rooms then? What, what made you think, okay, something's got to change. And then how did you take that leap? Okay. So I had uh, already experienced AA when I was in juvie, they would bring panels in. And when I was 30 years old, I was raided by the methamphetamine task force, which I went to jail. And again, they brought in panels to jail. So that was my, my taste of Alcoholics Anonymous. I believe that a seed would, was planted when I was a kid, when I was 17. And I believe that the seed was watered. It was a, a very weak seed, but it was a seed nonetheless. But I do believe when I was 30 years old, when people were continuing to bring the message of AA into the jail that we were at, that's where uh, I was reintroduced to the idea of sobriety. And then I remember getting out and being told that I have to go by the courts to AA and I'd sit there. I'm, I'm Mr. Contempt prior to investigation. I'll sit there with my hands, with my arms folded and just take inventory on the room and be like, I don't need to be here. When I figured out that I could sign my own court card, I started doing that. I didn't have to be an AA anymore. By the time I was 35 years old, I was a homeless man living out of my car in Costa Mesa, California with not, no aim in life, just living aimlessly and after seven, my mom did not want to have any communication with me. She told me, you better have a year of sobriety before you think you can even talk to me anymore. I didn't know that mom was brown belt Al-Anon during that time, right? And when that usually happens, the party's over with the family members. So I just, I remember um, she, I called her after seven months of sleeping in my car or sleeping at so-and-so's house. And she said that uh, she didn't want to talk to me, but she she put me in the hands of somebody who then uh, had me go to this house, and it was a recovery home. And I had already met this guy in that recovery home many years before, five years before. He had a sober living that I didn't stay at, but this time now it was like a recovery home, which he called a treatment center. It wasn't licensed or anything like that, but it functioned as one. And it was a Persian recovery home, which was one of the reasons I even went there was to make the Persian mother happy. And he was like, this dude was like a total recovery Yoda. Like he looked, he looked and sounded like Yoda, like a little Persian Yoda. Right. And he answered his door. He's like, hello, how are you doing? Welcome. I, I looked him in his eyes. I'm like, I know you. Like I, I met you before. And he goes, I don't know you. I'm like, don't you remember like five years ago, you had a sober living in Huntington beach. I came to your house and you showed me the rooms. Yes. I remembered I had the house. I didn't remember you. I'm like, don't you remember? I came like, never mind. I'm coming in, but on two conditions. One is, I don't believe in God. So don't try to sell me on this God idea. And two, do not send me to AA meetings. I can't stand AA. I don't want to go to AA. And he said, we don't go to many meetings. And sure enough, we went to two meetings every single day. So he wasn't working much of an honest program. But um, I remember being back in the rooms again uh, with my arms folded. And I remember walking into this one particular room and there was a lot of old men in there. And I just thought, oh, my God, it's come to this. Like, this is what is this? If I want to stay sober, like, this is what my life is going to consist of, like, hanging out with these guys. I don't play golf. I don't hang out with people like this. 
And there was like a row of people there, a, a bunch of old guys that they looked like they were in their last dying days. I, I called it death row in my mind, but other people call them the Romeos. And, and those guys would carry this message. Like it was a really powerful message. And it was basically the message of recovery. Like, like they, they were the elder statesmen of the room. Right. But I still wasn't convinced and I wasn't sold on that way of life until one day, about 90 days in, I was sitting in this room, in that particular room. The room was packed to the rafters because it was birthday day. You know, on birthday day, everybody shows up, especially motherfuckers that never go to the meeting except for once a year. I'm taking inventory during that time, right? And I, I know. I know who's like the real ones, right? And some dude in the way in the back of the room raises his hand. And I'd never seen this guy before. I'd never heard him share. I knew all of the regular shares. I knew their shares word for word verbatim. But this dude... This dude just started sharing it and he just busted out with some profound, funny, good, like meaningful shit. Like, I don't even know what he said, but that shit just, it seemed like his share just reached into my heart, like into my chest, into my heart, gripped it and, and without my consent. And, and I just thought, oh my God, that's it right there. I started busting up from the bottom of my belly thinking like, this is it. Like, I want to be here. Like, this is actually great. You know, that dude touched my heart. And I realized that that was the language of the heart and I, that I wanted to be in, in the program and I wanted to stay sober. Sounds like AA gotcha. It did. That'll pretty much ruin your drinking and using. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the, the daily reflection talks about maintenance of and, and growth of your spiritual experience. Do you mm -hmm. want to tell us um, how you built on that, uh, that spiritual experience? Sure. So, Obviously, me being a person that was always on the fence with the God idea, I remember in the very beginning telling my sponsor, I don't believe in God. And then when we started, he said, you don't have to believe in God. I believe, you know, and we got into the big book and he had a working knowledge. And so we started reading the book and going through the steps. And the way that he talked about his relationship with his higher power, I realized in that time that that man's in love with something greater than himself. And he's very comfortable in calling it God. He doesn't even just call it a higher power. There was just like this, this shift in perception during that time. I believe my psychic change happened before I worked all 12. I really do. Because I just sat with this man. I trusted him. He was such a good man. It wasn't that he knew all of the wording and the big words in the big book. This man, was he, was a, he demonstrated what it meant to be a man of recovery. He, he, you know, and, and because of him living by example and being the attraction rather than the promotion, I, I just, I started to believe in something myself. So I, I had this friend during that time, you know, when I got into my first few steps that one day in the morning, we went to have coffee after a morning meeting. He asked me, Pesh, do you pray? And I said, yeah, I pray. And he goes, well, how do you pray? And uh, I said, well, I lay in my bed in rehab and I pray until I fall asleep. And he said, you're a lazy ass. I'm like, why am I a lazy ass? He said, why don't you get down on your knees and, and, and pray like that. And I said, well, why is that mandatory? He goes, it's not mandatory. I go, well, then why would I hit my knees? I hear people in the rooms talk about it, but why should I? He said, because if you get in that submissive pose, you, you might be humbling yourself to God. And if you're doing that, it, you might actually feel different and different things will happen for you in your life. Just try it out. Try it. Um, and this kid was 21. I'm 36 years old at the time. I'm like, I'm going to take direction from this little guy, but he does have seven months. Right. And like, I like the kid. And so I followed suit. I started doing that. I got on my knees and, and um, something happened guys. Like I, I, when I got in, when I started doing this repetitively, because it became a mandatory act for me, I'd go to bed and get on my knees and I'd get up in the morning and hit my knees. And 
in the process of praying, I started to feel something very powerful that was that it just kind of it just took over in my life. It was outside of myself, but it was actually deep within, deep within myself. It was I had tapped into this level of consciousness that I had not felt before. It was everything I desired. It was God. It wasn't a he. It wasn't a she. It was just something that was all encompassing. And I realized that my days had got better. And everywhere that I go, when I go to like meetings, when I go to 12-step meetings, I hear people share. When somebody carries that message or speaks the language of the heart, it's as if God is speaking through them. God is speaking through them. And this is a lot more than the people that I was hanging out with before that had no interest for my well-being or anything like that, that were all caught up in ego and disease and alcoholism and addiction. And, and so I just started to believe and I became a firm believer. But the problem with me is, is that I would have sabotaged my own recovery because in Pej's life, when everything is going good, I suddenly, my my head, the, you know, the itty bitty shitty committee will cut, will suddenly say like, uh-uh, it can't be this good. Something's going to go wrong. Something's bound to go wrong. And so I remember I, I started contemplating relapse, like not that I was actually going to go through with it, but I remember thinking, you know what? I need to get back on my knees. And I know that they say in the 11th step, not to ask for, for anything from God, but I begged and pleaded with God to please just remove these morbid thoughts and, and these, this depression that I, this funk that I feel like I'm in. And it, it suddenly happened from that day on, I have not experienced depression. I really have not. And, and so my spirits have always been high because I went through the 12 step process and had the spiritual awakening. And I, and now I do my very best to live in God's light. I love that. You talked about the, the language of the heart and you definitely recognize it when you hear it you know, in meetings, uh, you know, who your people are, I guess. And I'm curious about your journey into 10, 11, and 12. We know the first nine steps kind of clear away the wreckage and create a space where God, whatever that is, each person can enter and start doing work on us. Just curious what, what your journey is there. And when Mm -hmm. you maybe elaborate a little more too on the language of the heart and what you mean by that. Well, with, with 10, 11, and 12, obviously, I think a lot of people relapse when they, I've noticed that a lot of people relapse on steps one, on four, and on nine. One, because they just have not really come to terms with the fact that they're powerless over alcohol or drugs. Four, because they don't really want to do that searching fearless moral inventory. But nine is because they don't want to face people and go actually make the amends to their face. Me personally, I didn't have any problem with that stuff. Like I was pretty much licked. I knew like what my problem was that that alcohol and drugs had major power over me. And my life was definitely not manageable. And on four, like I, I, as many horror stories as I heard, I was like, I'm mad at every motherfucking buddy. Like I'm ready to put all them down and, and, but didn't know that like, I really have to take a deeper look at um, my fears and the fact that I don't conduct myself well in sex acts and that I've harmed a lot of people. So by the time I was at nine, like as much as I was reluctant to making certain amends, I still became willing. And by doing that um, and going out and looking people in the eye or paying back people that I owed money to, however, I may have taken it from them. I realized I have a purpose. And at that point I was God driven. Like a, God was in the mix on my fifth step. God was in the mix on my ninth step. This was all stuff I was doing to carry like carry God's message to other people and let them know I want to change me and I've been wrong to you and I don't want to hurt you anymore. So when it comes to 10, 11, and 12, these work in in simultaneously in sync with each other because it's all under, it's all supervised by God, right? So in 10, I hear a lot of people 
talk about doing a 10-step inventory in the bottom of the evening, like they write their 10th step. This is not how I learned it. It says we promptly admit when, so basically I'll do my, I'll do a 10 step every day. If, if I really need to, if something is irritating me or bothering me or I've offended someone, I'll run it by somebody that's in the program or a friend or something like that and ask them like, what do you think I should do in this situation? And if they say, well, you were wrong for that, it doesn't even feel right for me unless I go and I tell that person Mm -hmm. I was wrong. This is a 10 step for me. 11 is when I pray and I meditate. So I talked earlier about the itty bitty shitty committee. I I believe that when we hear about people talking about the committee in our head, it's really hard to meditate when you have that chatter, right? And what are those voices that we have in our head? I believe it's every voice we ever grew up to and learned from, whether it be a teacher or parents or friends or girlfriend or boyfriend, or just, you know, these are all, all, and it's a lot of it is self-judgment. It's, um, some of it's positive, some of it's negative, but when I'm actually tapped into God and I meditate, I want to, I want to tap into that sweet spot and listen for the answers. This happened for me at about five years when I actually was able to meditate so well that I imagined what if God had a voice, what would God say? And God was, it was just, it was all love. It was just all love. He would just tell me, Pez, you're good. Like, I love you. I'm here for you. Don't worry everything is fine. It's not only that everything's going to be fine, everything is fine. When, I, when I'm living in that type of space, I'm God-centered. That means that I don't have to sulk or be sad or, or uh, carry the weight of the world on my shoulders. And when I pray, I get up down on my knees and I don't pray so that God hears me. God already hears me. I pray so that I hear me praying to God. And my prayer and my meditation becomes one of the most intimate things that I can experience on a daily basis. Cause it's with, with my creator, you know, and then in step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to addicts and alcoholics and everybody in life. You know, I mean, as long as I'm doing God's bidding and I'm actually being of service to my fellow man or woman, I'm golden. It keeps me out of self. I become like I practice altruism and I, and I become a person who's content and at peace in the world with myself and with the universe. So language of the heart. So I believe that there are messengers all throughout the world. And when we're in Alcoholics Anonymous, the message can be channeled more fluid, more, more. It's like the essence of, of people who are living in the light of God or doing God's work, or just, they're, they're just being people that are, helpful in helping people when they speak, not just people that speak the big book, word for word verbatim, people that live it and you just, you feel it within their essence. One of the houses that I created, my my, uh, sober livings, I, I named it the essence house because I truly love when people are living in their essence, when they, when God is flowing in and through them. And I, and I know like right now, I don't know who would listen to this podcast, but a lot of people, when they hear me talk so freely about God, I, I know some of them are on the fence with God. I know some of them are non-God believers. I know some are atheists and agnostics. I've been there. I've been all of that, right? But I've been told by a spiritual teacher of mine that it's okay to talk about my relationship with God. It is okay because at some point or another, most humanity or many people that are in that are human beings may have those moments in their life where they have the ability to tap into their higher self. And that would be God, you know, I love what you talked about when you mentioned uh, the 12th step and service. And it sounds like you're pretty plugged in there. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you carry the message today? Sure. I mean, 
obviously I get asked to speak a lot in in 12-step meetings, you know, in AA. I mean, I have a sponsor. He's, he's a circuit speaker. And um, and I don't think I get asked because because they all know that I'm his sponsee. Some don't know. I share in meetings. If I sit in a meeting and I'm just an observer and I'm not working my 12-step and I'm just sitting listening and not saying anything, I see a lot of old-timers that say, well, I don't share much, but today I think I'm going to share. I'm like, why, why don't you share much? Like, why shouldn't you share much? If you're working this program and you're sharing, then you're letting people know that you're available for sponsorship and um, you're carrying the message. You're, you speak in the language of the heart. So it's an AA. It's it's what we're doing here right now. It's what I do on my podcast. It's um, I carry. I go to you know hospitals and institutions. Uh, I, I'm very much in, plugged into panels. I still will go and sit on panels and just help people in rehab. It's really interesting to sit in various settings. Like when you when I when I speak in an AA meeting, most of my talk people are doing what you two are doing, nodding your head because you get it right. When I go speak in front of a group of therapists and tell them my story, they, they just look at me like, holy shit, like this is what we're going to deal with. Like this is our, the, the type of population that we're going to get because my story, if you really like go in deep depth, it's gnarly. Like there's some crazy shit that happened, right? I barely even touched on it today, but I try to carry the message in any way possible. And, and, I, and I don't do it because I need to uh, speak from a spiritual hilltop and tell everybody you must stay sober because I'm sober. Now nah, that shit didn't even work. When I used to go to AA, I, 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 that's what I imagine that people are trying to tell me in AA that I need to follow their way of life. But if I just carry my message and in, instead of my mess and, and it's hope and it gives people hope, then there's a message of hope that can be carried. Ej, uh, I love that. I love all that service that you're doing. And I, and I love the uh, just the lack of fear about, telling the story, you know, regardless of what you call any of the pieces and variables in it. I, I think it's amazing. And, and, and the, we, we always say we want diversity of message on this podcast because there's a person sitting somewhere that needs to hear every single person's individual, you know, somebody needs to hear each person's story. So I want to hear about the podcast. Like one of the ways that you're doing 12-step work right now is you've got Peggy's Recovery Corner podcast. So how did that get started? What's your mission? Who you have on it? Well, I had a podcast about two years ago with my friend Austin Armstrong. It was called The Sober Grind. It was uh, hosted by a treatment center. So we once that dissolved, uh, because we both left the treatment center, um, I really was wanting to start a podcast. And that was like in the beginning of this year. Obviously, during pandemic, every motherfucker started a podcast. But I want, you know, I'm I'm really big in on recovery, you know, and and but there's a lot of good podcasts. Like there's a lot of good stuff out there right now. Right. When you're confined in your house, like what else will you do? You got to get creative and, and, and do shit. So I decided to start Peggy's recovery corner. Cause I already had a Facebook page called Peggy's recovery corner from about six years ago that I wasn't really doing much with, but the, the picture on the Facebook page is, is basically this yellow seat. And then there's some graffiti writing in the background, which is like, kind of like my style, like, you know, like a little bit street and a little bit, spiritual like all mixed together and the types of guests that i have on there are anybody and everybody you guys are going to be on there in june i think june 22nd correct you know i mean i live out here in la so we get a lot of entertainers and people that are in the recovery world i've had um jeremy jackson that used to be hobie he was like a childhood star from baywatch and then this week coming up i'm having maz jabrani who uh ran the axis of evil on comedy central and he's been in like the movie next friday and he's a persian guy we're going to be talking about addiction and mental health in the persian community i've had you know besides actors i like picking people that that are interesting to me people that are in recovery and they do 
they're effective. They're, they're good people. They, they wear their recovery on their sleeve. Like, you know, that they're very comfortable in their recovery, that they've embraced this way of life. Um, I've also had a guy named David Wiss that I really, really think you guys should get. He, he's a nutritionist and he helps people that are in recovery and he's just a fucking samurai, like G when it comes to, to uh, talking about nutrition, but then many other things. He's a scientist. So like when he talks, he he's on a whole other level and and he's just an interesting person to to listen to and to ask questions of i had my for the first time my podcast went at like an hour and 10 minutes because i didn't want to let him stop talking it's and, and he's also in some other circles with me i won't ruin his anonymity but um but we're very close we're part of some home groups if you will gosh well thank you uh so much for stepping up and and joining us today mike did you have a a question for Pej before we close? No, I, I just want to say thank you. I, I think this has been a, a fantastic conversation. And um, I guess we always ask the guests if, it, if they've got anything else they want to share with the audience before we, uh, before we begin to wrap. The only thing that I really want to say as we close this out is just the saying, no God, K-N-O-W-G-O-D, no peace, K-N-O-W, peace or no God, no peace. It's up to you. You can make that choice. Thanks for letting me be on your podcast today. I love you guys both. Love Love you too. too. Thank you so much. Beautiful conversation. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to find us online, you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash daily reflection podcast. You can find us on Twitter at daily reflector. You can read stories of recovery from our community at blog.dailyreflectionpodcast.com. Please don't forget to give us a rating on your podcast app. We greatly appreciate it. Have a great day. This podcast produced by Lee McGinnis and Michael Lynn. Audio editing services by Jeff Bain.